Hey, before we start this uh, episode, Jackson here, just want to mention that if you have children with you uh, in the car or wherever you are listening, some of the topics we discuss uh, are a bit sensitive, and so I wanted to warn you about that before we start today's episode. Hello again, and welcome back to Empires of the Future. I am Denton, here with Jackson. And uh, we're moving along today a little bit further in the book by C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. We've been sort of making our way through this book now for uh, a good while, and hopefully you've enjoyed hearing us talk through as, as we're reading through the book uh, as much as we've enjoyed doing it. Um, we, we finished last time talking about—we we talked a lot about—well, um, I should be more specific. Last time we talked about this book, we have kind of taken a little— Took a little break from it, talked about other things, but um, in the last few chapters we covered, we talked about morality and specifically getting into sexual morality and chastity. Um, and so we, we talked about those kinds of things, and he then now turns to the next section, uh, which I am very excited to talk about today. We're going to get into here in just a little bit, uh, and that is the area of Christian marriage, uh, and uh, excited to hear the kind of things that... C.S. Lewis has to say about Christian marriage, but in the meantime, Jackson, how you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great. We just had some uh, Frank's Red Hot Chicken, you and I did, mm-hmm. uh, so I'm feeling like I had just enough. I don't have that over full feeling that I think is one of the worst feelings in the world. <laughs> uh, ah, yeah, I need extra water now. Yeah, I got plenty of water because that is a little hot, and so yeah, I feel good. Yeah, so we've talked about this before. What what would you, if you were to put yourself self on a scale of 1 to 10 of how... Um, how into spicy things you are. Three. You're a three. <laughs> I'm like a three. And I should specify one being the most into spicy things. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Yeah, uh, so a three. I think I would probably put myself at a two. Oh, wow. I am that not into spicy things. Yeah. Um, you know, we talked about it, these Frank Red Hots. Yeah. I think most of the guys that I am around would eat them and say, yeah, these are not spicy at all. Right. Um, Meanwhile, I'm sweating. <laughs> yeah, like... I was like, yeah, four or five is my limit on these, and then I'm going to need milk, <laughs> you know. Uh, but, yeah, I think I'm the same way. But thank mm-hmm. you for sharing those with me, and, and I'm going to just sit here and drink this water while yeah, you Yeah, you're going to run out of water there, and that'll be—they yeah, don't stick with you that long. It's not like a lot of other things. That's uh, true. I'll, That's I'll ask true. you one more question about this. Have You've been, I'm sure, in a group of guys that are, like, trying to eat super hot things. Mm-hmm. Have they persuaded you to do it? Um. Not I've, that I can I've re- never once because I know I, I won't recall. handle it well. Yeah, not that I can recall. I think the closest thing someone did kind of trick me into eating some really spicy candy one time. Oh, it was like that's, yeah, yeah, it was like a sriracha candy. I don't know what it was, but it just looked like regular candy, and they offered it to me as though mm-hmm. it was regular candy, and I took the candy, and uh, yeah, it, it cost me. It cost me. It was not very fun, but I, you know, I've tried like uh, Buffalo Wild Wings. Um, had some some people that have gotten like various sauces to try, yeah, yeah. and so like I know where they land, kind of on their scale of yeah. spicy. Oh, maybe dip a fry into their right, right, sauce right, right. And, and taste it, but even that, I'm like, no, that, I don't enjoy it at all. No, <laughs> yeah, no, not at all. No, don't do spicy stuff. I'm impressed with people who can and do though. Yeah, so. I'm convinced that either they've burned out their taste buds, or I mean, there's got to be something different because. I'm having like physical reactions and I'm just looking and yeah. they're just kind of, you know, it's like they're 
down in French fries over there. Right. You know? Right. When, when we went to Nepal, that was one of my, one of my concerns going was like, is there going to be just, are, are people going to put food in front of me and I'm not going to be able to eat it or it's just going to make me <laughs> really, right. really un, uncomfortable uh, eating these spicy foods. But it wasn't, that wasn't the case. Thank right. God. Everything was pretty well marked and pretty comparable to here as far as what's spicy and what's not. So, yeah. That was good, though. Now that we're all spiced up, though, with our Frank's Red Hot Chicken Bites. Now we can have a spicy conversation about Christian marriage. About Christian marriage. Hey, you said that with a sarcastic voice, but I think Christian marriage is spicy. (laughs) And I definitely think think that some of C.S. Lewis's takes on Christian marriage, even in his time, as he acknowledges, were kind of spicy. Yeah. You know? And, uh, and so I'm excited to talk about him. He, he opens the, the book, and I'll just kind of dive us in, if that's okay with you. Opens the chapter, not the book, um, talking about how, yeah, we've talked about you know sexuality and sexual morality um, previously, but mostly from just a generic perspective or even maybe a secular perspective. But now he, he proceeds into the Christian um, sort of category for sexual expression and proper sexual morality right. that being christian marriage um and he kind of kind of says on the out front like you know there's some reasons i i this isn't my favorite thing to sort of talk about wouldn't necessarily just of my own accord add this in uh, and one of the reasons he says is that it's you know the christian view of of marriage and sexuality is pretty unpopular in the world um and that's definitely the case um but in addition he acknowledges hey i'm a single guy and so yeah I feel, you know, I think he acknowledges, feels like maybe um, has less place to speak on the topic, uh, which I thought was fair and, and good for him to acknowledge that up front. But I also am kind of of the opinion, well, any Christian, whether a single man, single woman, married man, married woman, um, whatever, uh, those are the categories, I guess. But, right, and I mean, in terms of uh, law and gospel, like uh, murder is wrong. You don't have to have murdered somebody to know the depths of how wrong right. it is, and and this is interesting because I feel like what we have come, are coming from is uh, the idea of chastity, which is the law that yeah. you restrain yourself from sexual expression expression until marriage, which is sort of gospel. Yeah, uh, that that this is the the chastity is the negative, uh, whereas marriage is the positive. Yeah, uh, and and that makes this chapter. It, it, a great partner to think yeah. about in terms of uh, related to the sexual morality chapter and the chastity uh, chapter. And I tell you, this is why I am so, uh, why I find so much value in mere Christianity. Reading over this again today, I didn't read the chapter again. I looked over uh, both my notes and I have a journal, a mere Christianity journal. And I read mm-hmm. the couple of excerpts and kind of thought about how to break it down. And I literally learned fundamental categories again, just thinking about what he's saying. Yeah. And uh, this is why it's a useful book. This is what yeah. they say about great books. You read them over and over, and every time you read them, you find more, more useful things, more helpful things. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, we've had, had conversations uh, on, on this podcast about um, what I, my opinion of, like, what is the book attempting to do? What is he trying to do? But I come to these chapters, and I'm like, okay, I see what you're trying to do here, and you're succeeding. You're, right. you're just in a very practical and useful way laying out uh, the Christian biblical perspective on these things that we all uh deal with and see and and want to know about and so really really helpful chapter as he lays it out and you know as i said even though he's a single guy right he's a single guy who has access to an understanding of the word of god 
uh, and uh, a, a brain and common sense as well, which come in handy. Um, it reminds me of, we, we have a guy at our church who, um, he, uh, he, I've had him preach a few Sunday evening services and, uh, one of those kind of guys that I'm always wanting to give opportunities to, to preach to if can and, and things like that. And he's a single guy and like three times now he's been, been given a text to preach us, whatever text is next on what we're preaching through on Sunday evenings. And like three of the four or five times that he's preached, it's been on like marriage or, <laughs> or these kinds of things. And I'm like, man, sorry about that. I don't know why that keeps happening, but I always tell him, you can handle it. You know what the Bible says. It's you know, like, uh, there's a, a guy I follow on Twitter. His name's John Marshall. He was the pastor at Second Baptist Springfield, Missouri for something like 35 years. Great guy. Great guy. And um, one of the things that he's, I've seen him mentioned on Twitter more than one occasion. He says, God has been good to me. When I was 14, I preached my own sermon on how to raise godly children. And God has been gracious to me ever since, though I started out as such an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Thank goodness for his grace. Yeah. So, so let's get into kind of this chapter, uh, on Christian marriage. Um, one of the things that he kind of starts out with, uh, laying out, laying the groundwork, uh, he starts with what's called the one flesh union. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of is what really is the, the, uh, the essence of marriage, mm-hmm. uh, biblical marriage that God took Adam and Eve, uh, and, um, the two came together and became one flesh. Yeah. Um, here, I have a paragraph of his argument. Let me, I, I oh, read it. Good. Uh, so here's, here's how he starts. He says, quote, the Christian idea of marriage is based on Christ's words that a man and wife are to be regarded as a single organism for that is what the words one flesh would be in modern English. And the Christians believe that when he said this, he was not expressing a sentiment, but stating a fact, just as one is stating a fact when one says that a lock and its key are one mechanism or that a violin and a bow are one musical instrument. The inventor of the human machine was telling us that its two halves, the male and the female, were made to be combined together in pairs, not simply on the sexual level, but totally combined. The monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union, which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. Yeah, so I actually had that that last part Mm-hmm. Underlined as well, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse. I, I love his wording there. But the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage uh, is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all other kinds, uh, which were intended to go along with the total union. Uh, I think that's a great, great, great way of um, of discussing like what it is that what what is marriage and what is sex outside of marriage. Uh, and he rightly describes that that's kind of what's happening um, in that we as human beings, the world, the culture, um, we want to take this, which is always the case, we want to take this gift that God has given uh, and use it in a way that was not intended right. uh, to be used in that way. Uh, that we were given, and I would, I would call the, the one flesh union, uh, marriage, a gift, but as anyone who is alive, you don't even have to be married, anyone who's alive, um, knows marriage also can be very difficult mm-hmm. uh, to unite yourself to another human, ble- human being in this way, become one organism. Um, there's a lot of difficulties and hardships that are, are going to come out of that, likely. Um, 
I've heard someone say one time, marriage doesn't cause problems. It just brings them to the surface. Yeah. It just exposes them. And I think that's the case that, um, when you commit to this kind of union, um, you realize very quickly that there is far more to marriage, uh, than just sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, now sex is an integral part to that, but you can't take the two and, and divorce them from one another and expect to have, uh, the, the beauty of what God created and its most fullness of, of pleasure and, mm-hmm. and joy that is to be found in it. Yeah. I, um, I, I, as much as I've talked about how I appreciate so many sections of this book, I mean, what you said before we started today, this is these two uh, chapters we're going to talk about today, Christian marriage and forgiveness are so practical. They are, they are both examples of how, we we think, I mean, especially Christian marriage, we think we know what that is. Mm-hmm. And we are really far off. Even if you, uh, you know, obviously one of the things that we're going to be talking about today is that there is the idea in our culture that you can do uh, gay marriage, homosexual marriage, or whatever uh, kind, and obviously we don't agree with that. And it is because of more than just the fact that God didn't intend for a man to be able to marry a man or a woman to be able to marry a woman. Those are not two halves. They would be two halves of different puzzles that will not fit together. They, they don't, they don't operate as God intended. And that's not just like you said, sexually, it is also in all of the other ways. Um, and, and so we are in danger of thinking we know what Christian marriage is because look, we tend to think, I mean, according to the ways that we vote, according to the ways that our society is arranged, that people are individuals and that we should treat people just only as individuals when literally the scriptural teaching is what you just were referring to, that they're two halves making a whole in marriage in a mysterious way. And that that is the fundamental unit of society is is a man and his wife. That you cannot, you are not, it's not just that, um, obviously you can do a census and say there's 7 billion people, you know, in the world. Or there are 370 million people in the United States. It is less useful to think of them that way, to abstract individuals out from relationships because the relationships are so fundamental. And what is the most fundamental relationship? Man and his wife. Mm -hmm. That is the most fundamental relationship. If you are missing that, you are gaining less information that is useful than any other error. And we, almost everybody that I know and everybody that I've known in my life tends to think individualistically as as in, well, you got to think about that one person as this isolated individual. And as a result, and we keep on this trend, as a result, what we are seeing now is increased depression, mm-hmm. increased loneliness. And, and when we go, what's, what, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Well, this is a big part of what's wrong. Mm-hmm. And his argument, I mean, the argument is so cogent. And I'm looking at this going, I've read this book over 10 times. And in reading it today, this is the level. I mean, a part of what's interesting about this book is if you're asking certain questions, you'll find different answers in here. Mm-hmm. And this has just been what I've been thinking about for years, but I never really noticed how much he took pains to argue. Look, the one flesh union in modern English means they're a single organism. Whereas, and, and he goes further, he says that that's not a sentiment. 
but it's a fact. And if I want to, everybody who's listening, think about the last time you were at a wedding and you heard somebody say, now they're going to be one flesh. The two will become one flesh. We typically do. We just go, oh, what a nice idea. Yeah. No, no, no. It's not, it's not a, a sweet idea. It is God's opinion <laughs> about the people that he made. Mm-hmm. And just as you said, our main problem comes in when we take things that God has given, like sex, and we go, ah, sure, whatever, God, I can do be- better with this. Right. I, got, I got better ideas about how to handle this. Right. You may think you're right, but you're not. Right. And we, do, we all do that. We're all sinners, and we do that with so many different things. But in this, we are so prone to going, well, I did this, and I refuse to take stock of how that broke me. Mm-hmm. how my sexual sin broke me. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the scriptures go to pains to say, he who sins sexually sins against his own flesh. It's right. against his own body. You are breaking down things inside of yourself. That makes me think about like taking a sword and just stabbing yourself through. I don't, that, those words are so uh, frightening to think right. about um, because it's, I can't think of another place where it says this kind of sin is damaging in, in its nature mm-hmm. uh, in that way. And so there's so much yeah. here, but the, the things that he goes to pains to explain, I have not seen any progress in us understanding it better. And this right. book was written in like 1941. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If anything, there's, there's been a movement in the opposite direction. Yeah. And he makes the equation to like um, taking sex and separating it from the one flesh union and, and seeking to enjoy this aspect of it. You know, Chris, Christians are not opposed to the idea that sex is is pleasurable that there is right. enjoyment in sex and we probably haven't done a very good job of saying that we right that it is to be pleasurable in marriage right and there have certainly been corners of the of of Christendom where where it has been rightly or, or excuse me wrongly portrayed that sex is all around bad and yeah. and to be avoided or or a necessary evil yeah. at most even some even some great well-known well-respected uh, theologians have taken a, a misunderstood yeah. view about this. Uh, I think Augustine was one of those who who basically viewed sex and and kind of a, a it's necessary for procreation, but that's it kind of kind of way. Um, and and there have been others as well. But here's what I think is a right way to to say it is that we're not denying that sex is is pleasurable any more than we are denying that putting tasty food in your mouth is is pleasurable and tasting your your food uh, that you're eating. But to take sex and and separate it from the one flesh union to separate it out of marriage uh is a disservice to yourself because it's like putting food into your mouth and enjoying the the taste of of food as you chew it but then spitting it back out and yes. never digesting it never yeah, benefiting from that's it that's a good analogy and and eventually you're going to starve to death in that case yep. if you if you're putting food in your mouth chewing it up enjoying the taste but then spitting it back out you might be enjoying that for a moment but very quickly you're going to see a serious and and dangerous decline in your health yep. uh, from that kind of habit. And uh, I think that's a good way of, of viewing yeah. sex and marriage in that it is a it is a delightful, pleasurable part of an even bigger thing that God has given us for our benefit and for yeah. our joy. Uh, and that is the whole whole marriage union, the whole one flesh union. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And we we are in a among a people who are denying, I mean, while acknowledging the bodily pleasure, denying any spiritual elements, emotional elements, even relational relationship type elements, um, mental elements, the, 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 the talking. I mean, look at, you've been married long enough that I can guarantee you've ended up in a great conversation with your wife 
that ended up, you had sex that night and went like, wow, we had, this was about more than just physical. This was us connecting on different levels. Mm -hmm. And that's, these are things that frankly, I do feel sorry for people who are in only physical relationships because it's like you have no idea that this stuff is there. Right. You, you can't just get there in, I mean, I'm not even talking about just a one night stand. You can't get there unless you care about someone beyond the physical. Right. <laughs> it has right. to be there. Uh, and so the, 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 not even, we haven't even got to the moral element that look, can you imagine sex without guilt? Yeah. Cause no matter who you are, how far down the path you are, if you are having sex outside of the marriage covenant, there's going to be guilt associated. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, I mean, not even to mention masturbation and all these other things that, that are associated with sexual activity that is divorced from the one context where God says that's where we're supposed to live. Right. Right. I think there are some who, who have so, cause some people might protest that and they might say, Oh, I'm, I'm living in that way. I feel no guilt, no remorse. And some of those people are just lying. Yes. Um, but I think there are some who have, who have so seared their conscience um, that they're not feeling the, the, the sting of that guilt or the weight of that, uh, the way they used to, or the way they did maybe initially. Um, and I think this, this brings us back to something we've talked about multiple times on the podcast, but I mean, that's why people want to quote unquote destigmatize so much right. around like sexual relationships and sexual activity. Um, what they're really saying, and we need to destigmatize this is we need to try and remove all guilt. Yeah. Well, there's frankly just some things that they are, you're not going to be able to remove all the guilt. You know why? Because you're taking this thing that God has created it and using it outside of its intended purpose. Right. Uh, we as creatures, or as he calls um, the, the, mach- the human machine that God has created, he created us to operate in a certain way. And when right. you operate outside of that, um, you, you're going you're gonna to feel the weight of that and you're going to feel the effects of that. Yep. But the next thing this kind of one flesh union sort of gets us to, he, he talks about, uh, is he then brings in the, the quest, question of and the consequences of divorce. Yeah. Uh, and that's certainly an inescapable thing that you have to now talk about. You talk, this, this union we're prescribing here that we're laying out as, as the Bible lays it out um, of what marriage is, what you then quickly realize is that this view of marriage then causes us to view divorce in such a, as it should, a more serious way. Uh, that a divorce now becomes not just two business partners coming to a disagreement and uh, agreeing to separate and go their own ways. It, it is far more akin to a surgical operation to remove a limb or to or to cut a, a body in half uh, as it is a, a business partnership. And that, man, that's a serious thing when, when you begin to think about the consequence of that and view it in light of that. Um, and it's something that people don't really think about in the process of divorce or, or even maybe or more appropriately in the process of marriage when they're getting married about what that truly means. And like you said, we hear the, the description of it. I now pronounce these two, uh, one flesh. Um, that pronouncement that a, that a minister gives as, as the, uh, the Bible directs it, it, like you said, it's more than just a fun way of saying you're now in this binding agreement. It's more than that. Right. And, and divorce then takes what, what God has joined together, as we say in Christian marriage, and it rips it to shreds. Mm-hmm. And boy, that is a, as we've all experienced and seen, that is a messy and painful and brutal um, Right. I would say process. some divorces that I've seen are akin to taking a hacksaw mm-hmm. uh, rather than a surgical. I mean, and, and it's just so powerful to, if you know what something is, I mean, uh, 
ontologically, if you know what its being is, mm -hmm. the nature of that thing, then wow, the analogies that come to your mind, um, because if you talk to anybody, they'll say, you know, there's no such thing as a good divorce. Anyone who's familiar with, it's always ugly. It always hurts. It leaves uh, in its wake destroyed relationships beyond that relationship, damaged relationships, even on the fringes of those people's relationships. And That's exactly right. it is because of what it is. It's not just a sort of happenstance. They're like, oh, I guess it happens that divorce is really damaging. It's like, no, you, you're not understanding what you're dealing with if you think this is just an accident. Um, these are two people who experienced something and then made commitments to each other that did not stay true, that did not, that they didn't hold up to. And it is uh, well beyond, like you said, a contract where two parties do nothing, you know, two businesses come illegally say, well, I guess it didn't work out the way we expected. Let's just sort out the financial damages. It's way deeper than that. Uh, and we, uh, once again, we are in the business almost of denying, of refusing to look straight on at these things because, yes, it is painful, but also because, wow, if I really admit how damaging divorce is, mm -hmm. it'll be more than I can bear. Right. And, um, and, and frankly, too, having seen and loved people who have gone through divorces, it requires a lot of relationships with people around them to say, I'm going to take care of you. If you just had an arm removed, then that's, you're probably going to need quite a bit of help. Yeah. yeah. And I'm going to commit, I'm going to lean into this relationship and I'm going to give you what you need. My commitment to you is that, uh, we are doing badly in the church. Mm -hmm. We are doing badly in society at slowing down when these sorts of things pop up, when divorces pop up and going, I obviously did not know what was going on, mm -hmm. but I will walk through this with you. Mm -hmm. We've got to do better with it. <clears throat> yeah. And, 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 you know, man, there's so much in this conversation that we could say. Uh, divorce is no fun thing to, to experience or, or even to talk about, but it's, it is worth saying, as you have said, um, that I think as you're expressing the church ought to be, be approaching it in this attitude, that there is grace available for those who have, gone through divorce and by no means as we talk about the what I would say rightly we talk about the the destruction and the the evils of of divorce that it is it's a terrible terrible thing regardless of you know I know there are situations in which well yeah like it just seemed like you had no recourse at this point there's all the kinds of stories and situations and, and I'm not looking to dive into those but even in the worst of those I still maintain and, and hold that no divorce is a terrible and bad thing uh, even if it was an inevitable outcome. Um, right, and we should mention here that the two cases, broadly speaking, yeah. that the Bible brings up are uh, infidelity, meaning mm -hmm. someone was unfaithful. You, you, you are given some freedom to mm -hmm. divorce. It is not mandated. Right. And then abandonment in that case, this person is left. We don't yeah. have the power to lock people up in a house with the other person and say, no, sorry, we're going to make you live here. Right, right. And so I think that's a good good thing to kind of throw in there and add in. Um, but it is also just as important to throw in there to all those who are married or considering marriage or even desire marriage um, that know going into this thing of marriage. And certainly even if you're in the, the middle of a marriage, it's very difficult right now. 
remember the one flesh union that you're in and do not seek to to mutilate that that union uh, the way divorce does. You need to seek every recourse possible yeah. outside of that yeah. um, because it is a destructive and terrible thing and, and not what, what you signed up for in marriage. And you need to make that, you need to, you need to drive that into your will and your mind um, as deeply as you can. Right. And I have one more quote uh, from this chapter that I think will tie, uh, tie up because it sounds as if, uh, again, we've landed on divorce, which is law, but, but what is gospel? What is, what is the thing that, in our heart, that our hearts really long for and that we know it's a sin? We know that divorce, in addition to being harmful, is not what God wants. Mm-hmm. And, and here's his argument for that. He says, quote, The idea that being in love is the only reason for remaining married really leaves no room for marriage as a contract or promise at all. If love is the whole thing, then the promise can add nothing. And if it adds nothing, then it should not be made. The curious thing is that lovers themselves, while they remain really in love, know this better than those who talk about love. As Chesterton pointed out, those who are in love have a natural inclination to bind themselves by promises. Love songs all over the world are full of vows of eternal constancy. The Christian law is not forcing upon the passion of love something which is foreign to it, foreign to that passion's own nature. It is demanding that lovers should take seriously something which their passion of itself impels them to do. So it's in there. We know this. I mean, and this is, in, in a lot of ways, these are moments in the book that you go, yeah, I remember what it is to be 14 years old and for whatever reason, finding myself saying to this girl that I, I know almost nothing about, like, no, I, I love you and I, I know we're 14, but we're going to get married and I'll be faithful to you for my whole, I mean, the things that you just start saying, <laughs> things that start coming out of your mouth are, yeah. <laughs> yeah. are, are are quite shocking even yeah. and, and the only reason that I, you know you can look back and go why was i saying that it's like you don't know you're just you're something is inhabiting you yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh those that something is called hormones <laughs> it, it is but uh, what's but hormones and more yeah, yeah and more yeah mm-hmm. I, I agree with that um yeah he, he talks about and even like he brings into the equation here with regards to marriage and love and, and things like that um the idea of justice and in justice being uh, more than just, I think sometimes the way we think of it is re- related to authorities over us being just to us, mm-hmm. but also for us being just to those around us in that we keep our promises. And when we, when we stand together, when my wife and I, when you and your wife stood together uh, uh, in the church before congregation uh, with a, a minister of the gospel there um, and, and got married, we made vows to one another, we made promises to one another. Uh, and the question that you have to make sure you, you are asking and what many people don't, uh, is am I serious about keeping these promises that I'm making? Right. Uh, these promises of loving you for better or for worse in sickness and in health, um, till death do you part. These are serious, serious and weighty commitments. And we always, I know that you and I both, when we, when we conduct weddings, um, we try and make this clear in the, in the marriage. And certainly if you do any premarital counseling, you're going to try and make this as clear as possible. Like, yeah. Man, these aren't just pretty words we're saying. This isn't just a formality. These are legitimate promises that you're making. Right. Uh, and, and far too often people make these things um, with, I think sometimes even no intention of taking them seriously, that there is, as C.S. Lewis says, a sort of deception that's, uh, that's in play here. Uh, and he says, whom, whom then is the person trying to deceive? Maybe uh, God. And he says, well, if you're trying to deceive God as you make these promises, that's really unwise. 
maybe this person is trying to deceive himself. Well, that's uh, not very much wiser, he says. But he said, the bride or bridegroom uh, or the in-laws, is that who you're trying to deceive? He said, if that's the case, if you're getting up making these promises with no intention of actually being serious in them, um, he said that in that case is treacherous to seek to deceive a bride or bridegroom that way. And he says, quote, most often, I think the couple or one of them hoped to deceive the public. They wanted the respectability that's attached to marriage without intending to pay the price. That is, they were imposters. They cheated. I think this happens all the time in marriage today. That people get up, um, and, and you know, I wish it weren't the case, but I think even inside and outside the church, people get up to make this sort of public profession, yep. uh, seeking to deceive everyone, uh, knowing that at least one, or, or if not both of them, uh, wanting everyone to think and, and give them sort of the respectability that's attached with Yeah, I want to be legit. I want to be... I want this to be legit. Yeah, yeah you know, and this kind of stuff. Uh, when in reality, they have little to no sincerity in their intention uh, well, to maintain and, these promises. And the problem is, if you are approaching this going, I want to take this to the next level for me. Yeah, This is an, an, a part of my uh, life's adventure story. This is not a part of your life's adventure story. This is a part of God's story in this world that he is opening the door for you to join into. So if this is about, quote, your day or, you know, uh, if this is about sort of your beauty pageant or whatever you want to say, you've read this wrong. Mm -hmm. It's just not that. Mm -hmm. It's a part of a bigger story than that. And it is a part of God's story for you. But if it's, again, if it's outside of God's authority, outside of God's umbrella, you're, you are attempting to grasp and control this and use it in a way it wasn't intended, and it won't, it won't serve that purpose in your life. Yeah. Like so many other things, it may look like it does for a while, but you will see it steadily just decline. Outside of God's purposes, these things implode eventually. That's right. And then you get to a point where you're ready to move on from that person that partner and on right. to the on to the next one right and i and i want to warn people if you go oh i've seen some marriages that hold up oh, some marriages do crash and burn some marriages uh just include agreements where people live in the same house and go well we don't have to have that much to do with right. each other we can right. just keep on living the same house doing our own thing and what's the what's the harm in that again the harm is in your hearts because god's intentions are more than that mm-hmm. that's exactly right um, beyond that, I mean, he, he makes some really practical comments about how oh, yeah. this promise uh, also serves as a stable foundation, which is what children need. Yeah. And there's no accident that outside of any intervention, the husband and wife union produces children and a stable union. It, 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 we've mentioned this in the past few podcasts. Mm-hmm. Every study you read, the only study you'll read, which will say it's better for children to grow up in households that don't have a mother and father is a fake study. I mean, like, go look them yeah. up. They're yeah. not there. Right. They're not there. Children who grow up in a home with a mother and father do better mm-hmm. in every way. Yep. Uh, there are there are those who overcome circumstances to do okay out of a single-parent household. I mean, I'm out of a single-parent household. Um, but it is not the norm. Right. It, it, it comes with emotional baggage. It comes with challenges of various kinds. Yeah. And I would wager that most of the people that have overcome that, if you were to ask them 
what's best, they're going to say the same thing. Even after having, you know, come out of that, they're going to say, no, absolutely. They're aware of the challenges that come with being a child of divorce. They are aware of the challenges. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly right. Here's where, like you said, this is just such a practical um, chapter. He talks a lot about the difference between love and, and loving someone and the feeling of being in love. Yeah. Um, too many marriages are started, uh, founded upon, found, founded as well as it can be, uh, upon this feeling of being in love. Um, and too many people believe the, uh, like, like he says, kind of believe the, the things we read in, uh, books, novels, the things, things we see on movies and television of this feeling of being in love, being kind of being the, the equivalency or the substitute for what is love itself, yeah. uh, which is far deeper, far Yeah, you are meant to serious. feel the feeling of being in love when you're yeah. 14. You are meant, within a few years, to begin to learn how to follow through on the words that you're saying when you're 14. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't get beyond those promises that, that start when we're you know, 13, 14, 15, 16. That's exactly right. That we, we, but here's the thing. <clears throat> this is why... I think it's helpful that he distinguishes love from the feeling of being in love um, because our marriages are not to be built on, based upon, reliant on that feeling of being in love. Right. Because practically speaking, this is just the way it is. And I know people who might say, oh, no, my parents were married 50 years and they were madly in love now even more so than, than they were then. No, they're not. I, I'm going to go ahead and tell you they're not. Right. Uh, they might be more committed to one another now than they right. were then. But what you are seeing is the product of a different kind of just something other than a feeling of being in love that right. they did feel when they first got married, right. the, the butterflies, the jitters, the excitement, the, um, all these kinds of things, yep. um, that has dwindled for them. Right. But that's not a bad thing because it has opened up for them a, right. an avenue, a road to something far greater, far deeper that you are now seeing and thinking that it is still those butterflies, those jitters, those, right. all those kinds of things. And n- no disrespect to anyone's parents out there that they're, they're thinking that about. They are not just experiencing the feeling of being in love. They're experiencing love, the fullness, genuine yes. and truly in the fullness thereof, which is a, a, as much or more an attitude of the will than anything else. Right. Because frankly, I mean, personality characteristics lend themselves to greater shows of affection and things that it, it's hard for us to diagnose from person to person and couple to couple. Uh, meanwhile, developed love, you know, is as different uh, from immature love as a little sapling is from an enormous oak tree or right. as a newborn, you know, puppy is from a grown, you know, German shepherd. Right. Like this, we're talking about a seed versus yeah. the mature thing. Right. The, uh, the, there are characteristics that are still there, mm-hmm. but it, there is much more that is accompanied in maturity. Right. And thank goodness, you know, like that, the feeling of being in love, it might be sort of the, the catalyst or the jumpstarter that, that gets us into that relationship with that person or even, you know, um, whatever the case may be. Um, because we, we would also largely describe this as what a part it means to be attracted to someone, yeah. uh, that kind of yep. attraction that you feel. Um, that is oftentimes one of the essential ingredients. Ingredients, um, I would I would argue all the time. Wouldn't you say every time? Yes, every yes. time. And essential. Yeah, I've actually ingredient. talked to young people who are pretty mature in their faith, and they go, "Well, I'm, I, uh, 
this is a very good person. I respect them. Mm-hmm. I like them. I just don't, I'm not attracted to them. My advice literally has been spend time with them. But if you don't feel attracted to them, it, God intends. I think God intends for us to catch things beyond physical attraction, characteristics that other people have that we are like blind spots that we're lacking yeah. and areas where we're kind of missing certain uh, personality characteristics. And we, we are intrigued by the mystery of other people, which is a part of what attraction is. Yeah. And so I've, I have said that to people. Look, if it doesn't come along, if you don't feel attracted to them, you're going to spend a lot of time with this person. Yep. If you don't have the seed of it, I, I, I would trust that. Yeah. You know, you actually gave me that advice one time. Uh, there was a, a particular young woman in, in, the, in the church at the time, and um, you were kind of like, hey, have you ever thought about, uh, yeah. about this young woman? You know, and, and that was kind of essentially what I said. Like, yeah, I mean, she's great. Yeah. Very nice. Very sweet. Um, I just, it was not, the attraction wasn't there. And your response was, well, then that happens sometimes. Yeah, you should move on then. <laughs> don't, don't go for that. Um, and it was nothing, literally there was nothing wrong with this, um, with this young woman, um, at all. It, it was just a, a matter of wasn't attracted to her. And, yep. and I think you were right in saying, yeah, then you probably should, should move along if that's not there. Cause it was, an, it wasn't even someone that like, I didn't know at all, you know, right. got to know this person a little bit already. Oh yeah. One of the curious things about this, we've run on, on about this forever, but yeah. one of the curious things about it is you can meet people, not find them attractive and then know them for a year and find them very attractive. Yeah. Yeah, which is a funny thing. Funny thing, but yeah, and, and I'm gonna read one more quote from him here. Maybe one, maybe more than just this one. But I'm gonna read this one right now, uh, where C.S. Lewis says, "Love is love in this second sense. Love, as distinct from being in love, quote unquote, is not merely a feeling. It's a deep unity maintained by the will and deliberately strengthened by habit." Okay, I, I love that. I love mm-hmm, that. He says, mm-hmm. <clears throat> he says, reinforced by in Christian marriage, the grace which both parents ask and receive from God. He says, they can have this love for each other even at those moments when they do not like each other mm-hmm. as you love yourself even when you do not like yourself. Yep. And I was just like, man, this is where I was thinking, like, yeah, what a great practical teaching on love and marriage and what it is and uh, that it is. It's a, it's, a, it's a deep unity. It's maintained by the will. And it is deliberately strengthened by habit yep like people talk about oh creatures of habit we've fallen into a rut all this isn't good for our our marriage or whatever it's like not necessarily actually sometimes habit is really good and exactly what your marriage needs if it's going to last right as you go through the ups and downs of marriage and you you feel sometimes like i i'm mad at my wife i don't i don't want to give her a goodbye kiss today i encourage you do it yeah habits like that the habit itself helps you to maintain the associated feelings. We, we often get the cart before the horse uh, and, and don't realize, we, we actually think of it in wrongly, that, yeah. well, I, I want to get this feeling, but I'm out of the habit. It's like, look, you're, you have a mind. Start the habit. Mm-hmm. The feelings will come along as they ought to. We can't control our own feelings, mm-hmm. uh, but we can, uh, we, we, we can influence our habits, and by the grace of God, our habits can change. That's right. That's right. And, and he, he even goes as far as to say those um, those feelings you feel of uh, these passions of being in love that you feel right away. Many people try desperately to hold on to those, to cling to those, as yep. though without those, their marriage is a sham. Um, but that's foolishness. He, he argues, let them go. Be okay with seeing right. those things fade away 
uh, and be prepared for the doors that open up right. on the other side of that in the more secondary, more uh, more will-driven, deliberate kind of love right. and affection that's going to blossom out of that. Uh, you will you will always be left at, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read another quote because I'm not going to say it better than him. He says, if you decide to make thrills your regular diet and try to prolong them artificially, they will get weaker and weaker and fewer and fewer, and you will be bored, disillusioned, a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're constantly needing this kind of, you know, emotional high of passion and being in love, um, you're just going to, you're going to be utterly let down. And right. You're never going to be satisfied. Um he says you'll be a bored, disillusioned old man for the rest of your life. Yeah. I think that would that would also go for women, <laughs> right? If that if that is you. So, um, yeah, really good practical teaching on on love and marriage and wisdom and things that some of us maybe if we've grown up in good um, Bible teaching contexts maybe have heard. I know I heard this kind of stuff from Pastor Dave all the time here at First Southern. I'm so thankful for it that like uh, to me hearing that love is an act of the will. Yeah. Um, is not news to me because thankfully I had a, a wonderful pastor who taught that from the pulpit, even the pastor as pastor right. Dave did. Um, but for, but for so many people, that's not the case and they are left to gain their teaching, their understanding of love from, as we've said, movies, television, novels, or the culture at large, uh, which is not a good place to learn yeah. what marriage and love are supposed to be and look like. Yeah. Uh, you know, the Bible commands us to love. The Bible right. says, love your husbands, love your wives. Love and your, it's, your neighbor, love, love your, your enemy. Neighbor. Right. That's exactly right. And when you begin to think of of love simply as, even the love between a husband and wife, simply as um, this emotive feeling, the emotion of being in love and these butterflies and, and starry eyes, whatever, then you're misunderstanding the biblical understanding of love. Because look, you don't always have control over that. Mm-hmm. In fact, rarely do you have control over that. Right. Uh, and the Bible says... It commands us to love. You can't command a feeling that you don't have control over. Right. Uh, but the Bible says, no, love, and that you are to be committed in this way to yep. showing this love, this commitment to, to, you are to direct your will to loving and caring for yep. your husband or your wife. Um, it, it's a biblical command. It's more than just right. a, an emotive feeling. Right. Um, love is a commitment of the will to the true good of another person. Yeah. A commitment of the will to the true good of another person. So whatever you know of what's good for them, you commit to doing it to the best of your ability. And that applies uh, beyond a marriage. Um, and so we can tag this. Uh, this section on forgiveness ties right in with this. I, mm-hmm. I, I, this ties are we, in. Are we done with marriage? We're running out of time. Uh, we're running out of time. Because <laughs> oh, um, we didn't even get to talk about what I disagree with them on. Oh, too bad. <laughs> All right. You're uh, off the hook today, CS. There you go. Maybe you'll get to, to mention it here in a minute. There you go. All right. Have you mused at all? Is it, it's actually been provocative to me and something that I've had to think about because I understand parts of it, but I think there's so much more to learn about it. This verse that says, love covers over a multitude of sins. I've mm. thought, so, like, what does that mean? How does mm. that work exactly? I think one of the easiest ways to get into it is just what we're talking about here mm. is if you are committed to the true good of another person, then you are able to go, I am not self-obsessed here, sitting here going, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to forever be focused on one thing, and that is how you wronged me. Yeah. Which leads us right into forgiveness, which is book three, chapter seven. We are, we are if we're honest, 
the idea of forgiveness is wonderful, but to anybody who's ever been betrayed, mm. uh, let's say let's say being betrayed is not wonderful, and then looking at the Bible and going, so I have to love them and be willing to forgive them? We immediately are drawn into all kinds of practical problems. The first one being, so what? Am, am I just enabling them to do this again and again and again and again? That sounds like a really stupid thing to do. Yeah. I want to do that. And so we're immediately at a very practical impasse. Yeah. So what what is what does he do for us here on forgiveness? Yeah. I so you're asking me if I've ever mused upon that? Is that what you Have you're you saying? thought much about uh this this verse that says love covers over a multitude of sins? You know, I, I don't know that that specific verse I've really necessarily meditated on the way you have. Um but it is a diff. I I think I can say I've meditated on it enough to know that that's a very difficult passage. I think that's as difficult as any passage because we are so, um, frankly, we to be wronged by another person, um, even in petty things. If we're honest, man, that can be a a, a relationship ruiner. Yeah. You know? when, yeah. when we feel yeah. as though we have been wronged. Um, that's not something that we as human beings easily just let go. Mm-hmm. Um, because as we talked about, you know, we are so, we understand the concept of justice and injustice. And yeah. when we feel that we have met, been met with an injustice, um, it just directly, we, we hate it, yeah. you know, and, and we can't hardly stand it. Um, and we don't oftentimes think of these kinds of things as the way we ought to see us. Lewis sort of directs uh, to the idea of, uh, of, loving one another as you love yourself, treat your neighbor as, as you would be treated. Right. Um, and he says that begins to open our eyes as to the concept of forgiveness, because if we wrong someone else, say a friend of ours, uh, if we wrong them, what do we want? We don't want them to think of us as a, just a terrible swindler guy who goes around wronging other people. Uh, we want them to not, not think of us in that way, but to rather, sort of divorce our person. Think of me in the way I think of me. Yeah, think of me the way I think of me. Yeah, that is kind of what he directs us to do too, C.S. Lewis does, Uh, because he says when you think about it, he he talks about thinking about how you think of yourself, or he uses himself as an example. He's like, there are aspects of of C.S. Lewis, of Clive Staples Lewis, that I don't like. I don't often enjoy. You know, I don't like when I'm uh, cowardly or when I am a... um, uh, ungracious or when I am, uh, you know, any of these things, I see those aspects. I mean, I don't like them, but yet I still love myself and I'm able to sort of divorce those things from myself. Um, and it's easy when we are doing that to ourselves, but when we are confronted with the idea of doing that for someone else, uh, and I'm using the word divorce here because I've been told I'm, I have not taken Greek yet in seminary, but that the biblical word for forgive is akin to the word for divorce, to separate these things. So when you when you forgive someone of a sin, it is almost as though you are are separating them from that sin in your mind yeah. uh, and in your heart. So and, like the love the sin, the hate. Uh, hate love the, the sin, s- love the sinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you would have never got to that. <laughs> uh, yeah, something like that. I'm, I'm going to keep on loving the sin and hating the sinner, something yeah. like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's... Um, that's very much like, and, he, and that's what he mentions in the book too, um, very much the concept that 
that I'm kind of putting forward here, I suppose. Um, because it is, that's what we're called to do, but it gets really hard. I mean, it's hard all the time because then it's con conflicting with our desires for our own best interest and, and what we think we deserve and, and things like that. But it gets even harder when you then begin to apply it in harder places. So, uh, he uses, uh, an example of like uh, a dictator or people who do very evil, terrible things. Um, we almost in a sense as human beings don't want to find out that it's not as bad as we think it is when we hear about things they've done or, or, or other things that maybe they had some good qualities or whatever. Mm -hmm. We want to think of people that do evil monstros monstrosities uh, as just being utterly evil and monstrous to the core beyond, right. beyond the pale. Different right? kind of person. Than oh I yeah. Am. Yep. Yeah. That per Hitler, he was just a different kind of person than me. Um, who, who else could we name it? Even someone, you know, uh, politicians or people that we find out are involved in all kinds of corruption and terrible things. Um, wrong to other people. We think, oh yeah, that person's just so so evil, so terribly. Yeah, so if you think about it, there is a monster of the week, uh, and if you're wondering who it is, I would just get on Twitter. I mean, yeah. uh, there was uh, what was his name, the Republican uh, congressman who was found out to be lying about uh, Jewish heritage. Uh, this was the, the he was the hated person uh, mm -hmm. for the a month ago, wow. uh, and and I mean I literally. Yeah. literally you could look on Twitter and there is a hated person of the week. I mean, it's yeah. whichever person was most recently canceled. Uh, I mean, not, names are coming to my mind over the last few years, Kevin Spacey, uh, Donald Trump. Uh, Oh, who was the, uh, Harvey Weinstein was, I mean, you could, this is yeah. this actually, I hadn't thought about this, but it's very useful to think about this yeah. in regard to this chapter. Uh, there is a person, we, 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 it used to be that Hitler was the only person anybody could come up with, but we literally have, have gotten into the business mm -hmm. of having a revolving door of hated people. Yeah. And, and it's not as if just because you get in the revolving door, when you get to the other side, they let you out. No, you're just like part of the merry-go-round yeah. forever, it seems. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the case. And then, we, then when you bring it back to sort of the personal level and, and you're wronged, if we're honest, we, we would admit that in those times, in those situations, it's far easier for us to think about that person that wronged us and to think about other ways in which that they have that they are flawed, that right. they are in the wrong, that they are um, weak in other areas. You know, it's it's easy for us to dwell on them in that light, and begin to only see them for the worst parts about them, yeah. or even ascribe to them other parts about them that are bad and that are, yep. you know, just deplorable. When in reality, what the Bible calls us to do is to be able to look at those who have wronged us, and it doesn't mean that we just act like nothing ever happened. It doesn't mean that. Um, you know, whatever the case may be, that you are just ignorant. That when someone punches you, you just go, oh, well, nothing happened. No, nothing happened. You know, mm. uh, nothing like that. But it is to say that we view them uh, and still are able to see and willing to see um, the good about them as well. Not yeah. seeking to view someone who's wronged us as pure evil, uh, even though that's where our human tendencies want to take us. Right. Um, that's a hard thing. Um, uh, and then... You think about that. I think about this with regards to like road rage too. Yeah. So sometimes I'm out on the road driving and as it would happen, um, people do things that they're not supposed to do on the road or pull out in front of me or whatever. And the natural tendency is to want to go, ah, oh, come on, get out of the way, honk your horn, you know, yell at them, maybe do something worse. Who knows? Right, right. Um, but I, I've... And this is just something yeah, that I have found. You're reminding be me of uh, of probably a, a new theory that you just gave me that like we were getting ourselves ready for internet rage 
through road rage. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like... The horn going, was the original where, tweet. Where did this come from? <laughs> uh, this rage that I feel on the internet. It's like, yeah. we, I think we've been building it up for a lot of years. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, the, the original. That's pretty funny. That's true. Because there is a sort of... Uh, autonomy when you're in your car and there's other people in their car you don't know them they don't know you and unless things really escalate you're not ever going to meet face to face you know you you never hope to be out of your car and them out of their car <laughs> i've seen videos of that right no kidding yeah but um think about it like this too like if, if you're in that case and you just think someone does something on the road that's silly don't you immediately just think the absolute worst about they're just a complete oh, yeah. moron you yes. know uh, nothing good about that person. And then it's always funny when you like see the person in the car and you realize, oh shoot, I know that person. <laughs> like, oh, well, maybe they're okay. Ah, for, I for, you immediately, you're like, well, I can forgive that because I know, you know, there are good things about you. I think it's a helpful thing for me when I'm driving. Um, first of all, to know that I make mistakes when I'm driving. Um, it's just the fact of the matter. We all do. Um, and to try and put myself in their shoes and be like, Hey, you know, I didn't hit them. They didn't hit me. We're okay. Right. It's all good. Move along. Don't think, don't take these too personally. Some people might say, but, um, yeah, that's a sort of microcosm of, of forgiveness and what lack of forgiveness looks like when we are wrong, when someone does something wrong and we, it seems to be against us or, or we are, are, are affected by it. It's very easy for us to just think the absolute wish about that person. And, and that's it. <laughs> you right. know, uh, the Bible calls us to do the opposite. Uh, but to be able to divorce that person from that thing uh, that they have done, that wrong that they have committed, um, that's sort of a picture of what forgiveness looks like, at least at the start of forgiveness. Yeah. Uh, I think George Santos is the name of the Republican congressman, um, which reminds me of all those people, those names that I brought up. It really does sharpen the tension that you experience right here because it, I, I'm sure someone uh, is thinking, well, what do you just just let them off scot-free just for all those people, those terrible people that you're saying, just, just forgive them. The start of the, it is, it is a recognition. When you see the sins of another person, you, you should recognize they're already cursed. Those things are already in the process of destroying them. And then add to that, hey, do you know that you are a sinner who, yeah. who has various characteristics that you're trusting in about yourself that are in the process of destroying you that in your sins, you're saying to God, curse me, curse me to hell for Mm -hmm. all eternity. I don't want anything to do with you. I definitely don't want to live in a place where you rule and reign. That's the only kingdom of heaven that exists. Mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, Christianity doesn't tell people to lessen their hatred for sinful behavior, but perhaps we should hate sin in the same way that we hate our own mistakes and failings, feeling sorry for the people who sin while also hoping that somehow they can be cured. And listen to that especially. Looking at these people as human beings going, I hope somehow they can be cured, rather than having nothing but curses for Mm -hmm. them. Yeah. I think that's a really good way to view it, and a really good way to word it, as as he does. Um, Yeah, and I know we're probably getting close on our time here. Um, one, and he, he gets to kind of speaking to what it means to be a Christian, because this is the whole thing, like right, this is mere Christianity. Uh, this is a Christian perspective on forgiveness. And he acknowledges that, like, man, it's really hard, and, and it's something that we have to work at and, and try, and we're going to fail. Um, he says, I do not mean that uh, anyone can decide this moment that he will never feel it anymore, that is that sense of, of hatred for one another, lack of forgiveness. He said, that's not how things happen. I mean that every time it bobs its head, day after day, year after year, all our lives long, we must hit it on the head. 
It's hard work, but the attempt is not impossible. Uh, and really, although he's applying it here to forgiveness, that's what, I mean, we're taking, we're taking forgiveness or, or lack of forgiveness, hard-heartedness maybe, uh, and, and putting it in the same category as all sin. Like, we are constantly in the state of having to fight against our sin. And when it rears its head, when it, as he says, bobs its head, we bop it back down again, yeah. right? You, you suppress it. You, you seek to uh, mortify your sin. Um, that's what we're called to as believers to do. And yeah, it's hard work. Yep. Uh, and he says, I admit that this means loving people who have nothing lovable about them. But then here's where C.S. Lewis kind of turns the mirror back in your face, right? And he says, but then has oneself anything lovable about it? He said, you, you love it simply because it is yourself. God intends us to love all selves in the same way and for the same reason. But he has given us the sum ready worked out on our own case to show us how it works. Uh, I think this is a helpful, helpful way of describing it. That like, look, you think this means you're going to have to love people that just really have nothing in themselves, right? That's mm-hmm. worth loving. And he's like, yeah, but look at yourself. Why do you love yourself for any reason other than you are yourself? Right. Um, you really yeah, don't. You, right? you are, you are in, in whatever wisdom you have committed to your own true good. You love yourself. Now, you're twisted, and, and this is what's so tough. Is some people go, you don't understand, I don't like myself at all. Yeah, there are things going on inside of your own heart that you might be twisted up and confused, but in your own wisdom, whatever wisdom you have, you do what you perceive as good for yourself. Right. When you're hungry, you eat. Right. When your hair is completely whacked out, you do something about it. I mean, <laughs> like the, you, the, our instincts cannot be here without absolute just a major... Uh, mess, like put, being put through awful psychological circumstances, you still even then have some base ideas about how to do good for yourself. Right. And that's what he's saying there. You know how to do that. Yeah. You, you know how to do what's good for you to whatever degree the wisdom is alive in you. Okay, have you ever thought about turning that wisdom over towards your neighbor, even your enemy? Mm-hmm. And then the other game that the devil plays is put all these people out here and say, look at those deplorable people out there mm. that are deserving of nothing but hate and tries to transfer that to the people in your life who have wronged you mm-hmm. and says to you, these are the same. And while your heart knows better, people you have known in real life, you go, no, they're, they're more than just those sins. Right. But with your own, your own twisting, your own manipulating, you can convince yourself, no, these people here, I'm going to do nothing but hate them. Yeah. They're traitors. Yeah. They wronged me. And then we do all these dumb things. We tell ourselves, well, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on All these dumb things. These <laughs> sayings that live out here that... that Yeah, don't get mad, get even. <laughs> right. And, and unfortunately, there's an entire uh, edifice, an entire uh, way <laughs> that you can follow to go, you want to live by the wisdom of this world? Here's the path. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's spiritual warfare. That's it exists. Right. It's real. It's around you every day. And this, I mean, the two things that we've talked about today, in, in yours and mine, our lifetime, we have seen losses on these fronts. Yeah. And we continue to see losses on these fronts uh, to the destruction of marriages and every kind of relationship. Because, look, if you don't know how to forgive, you're on a ticking time bomb with every relationship you have. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah, he, he compares um, the, the unwillingness to forgive uh, like, um, you know, people, people have to give up their, their bitterness or their unforgiveness 
the same way they have to give up tobacco or alcohol, right? <laughs> right? People who, who are addicted might to feel those good, things. but it's toxic to you. Yeah, people who are addicted to those things. We we become addicted to those feelings of of bitterness and and resentment. Uh, the same way we can become addicted to things like alcohol and tobacco. Yeah, and that's a, that's a true true statement. Let me add one more kind of detail um, that we that we should uh, add here. Uh, if anybody's hearing us to be saying. Uh, Harvey Weinstein, for instance, you saying he shouldn't answer legally for what he did? Oh, he should absolutely answer right. legally for what he did. Right. Criminal acts are punishable by the state. Uh, that's why we have criminal codes. And the the Christian viewpoint is, it's best for you mm-hmm. to pay the consequences for your actions. Mm-hmm. And, and and not not best not just best for society. Right. It's best for you. Right. You've convinced yourself you're so far down the road of destruction that you're doing destructive acts to other people and telling yourself they deserved it or it's fine or secretly they wanted me to do it. Things that are so, lies that are so destructive that you are destroying yourself and other people and the best thing for you and the best thing for society is for you to pay the consequences. And so, yeah, without a doubt, I mean, that's one thing that we have to be saying about this is that loving people gets complicated. Right. It means punishment for crimes and it means wise action i'm not saying you know if you give uh your child a hundred dollars and they waste it they just go well i love you so i better give you a hundred dollar bill again tomorrow <laughs> you you act in a wiser manner based upon behavior that you have observed and uh so that that entire wing of the christian tradition exists here as well Right, the, this sort of biblical forgiveness is not an erasure of justice, and and that's good that you're saying that. He he says that in the book too. We kind of uh, didn't hit on that much. I'm glad you did. Uh, it, it's similar to go. It goes back to like when we did that podcast on um, the man who was on death row, yes. and wanted to have his pastor there with him yep. uh, to hold his hand um, while he was while he faced lethal injection. Well, the the you know the justice system, the law. Uh, and you know many people in in charge who were, um, they they kind of denied him that right, and they said no, you can't have that. No one can be touching you. No one can be in the room. And it was appealed. I think it went to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ultimately ruled in the favor of religious liberty um, that he should be allowed to have his pastor there in the room and hold his hand. I think this is a now they didn't stay his death sentence. Right. Um, I don't know the status on this man to this point, but. Um, but the ruling was not to stay his death sentence. He was not allowed to to forego the death penalty. The death penalty still uh, was awaiting him after that ruling. But there was sort of an acknowledgement in that. And as we said, we think it is good and it is right that he should still be treated like an image bearer of God, like mm-hmm. a human being. He should still be given this right. Uh, regardless of what we think his intentions are, uh, he ought to be, and this is the picture of sort of, um, you know, not doing away with justice for the sake of love and care and respect for other people, um, that he should still be allowed to have that aspect of his of his humanity honored while at the same time justice for his crimes to be met. Right. And I think that sort of helps give some clarity to the difference between forgiveness and uh, not applying justice. Yeah. The cool, cool, coolest picture we have of that is, is the Lord who, who is both just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus Christ as he right. pours out his wrath upon all sin. Right. But for those of us who trust in him, our sins are forgiven and Christ pays the penalty for us. We see a great picture there of, of justice still being applied 
while forgiveness being uh, flowing freely to us. Right. If you find in yourself no, uh, no, no beginning of forgiveness, ask yourself what you've been forgiven of in Christ That's right. and how, how far reaching that forgiveness and love is. And, um, and you know, even today, if you go live, I, I don't know, we'll look into it. Right. It's um, no better news. Amen. There is, there is, there is forgiveness for anything. And that's, uh, <laughs> fill anything with anything you want. It's, it's that amazing. It's that unbelievable. That's right. That's so right. let me ask you then, uh, since I, I didn't know we had quite as much time as we did. What's your, what's your issue? What's your Christian marriage issue? Oh man. Yeah. So he, he says one thing and it's a small thing. It's not some sort of like all right, all right. huge ordeal, but he kind of argues, uh, I'll read it for you. He said, um, the Christian conception of marriage is one. Uh, the other is quite a different question. Uh, he says, how far... I'm, I'm getting this mixed up. He says, how far Christians, if they are voters, members of parliament, ought to try to force their views of marriage on the rest of the community by uh-huh. embodying them in divorce laws. Okay, so okay, just okay, to clarify okay. what, what he, I just read there poorly, he's saying, you know, one of the questions that comes up here is, how much should a Christian view of marriage uh, become the law of the land, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and and divorce as well, since that's a part of marriage. Yeah. And he argues, uh, let's see here. I see he says a great many people seem to think that if you're a Christian yourself, you should try to make divorce difficult for everyone. I do not think that. At least I know I should be very angry if the Mohammedans uh, tried to prevent the rest of us from drinking wine. He says, my own view is that the churches should frankly recognize the majority of British people are not Christians and therefore cannot be expected to live Christians li- Christian lives. And then he says this. This is kind of his solution he proposes. There ought to be two distinct kinds of marriage, one governed by the state with rules enforced on all citizens, the other governed by the church with rules enforced by her on her own members. Mm-hmm. The distinction ought to be quite sharp so that a man knows which couples are married in a Christian sense and which are not. Um, I kind of disagree with him on this point. Um, I think if the church, marriage in and of itself is a biblical, is a Christian institution. It's instituted in the Bible by God. Um, I do not think that that means that it is only good for Christians to engage in the biblical understanding of marriage. That is, it is a one flesh a lifelong union between one man and one woman. I don't think that that Christians are the only ones that should view it in that sense and be held to a marriage covenant in that sense. I think if the state is going to be involved at all in marriage, which is a biblical concept, uh, we need to have a, a clear definition of what it is. That's fine. Uh, but I think if they're going to be involved in it at all, then they ought to hold everyone to the same standard. Um, so what are your thoughts? Wow. So when you just read that, I did not remember that he had mentioned that and how, how applicable to our times, Mm -hmm. because the argument he's basically making is that there is marriage and then everyone else who, if you're not a Christian, you can't have Christian marriage. You're basically having a civil union, whether you want to call it that or not. Mm -hmm. And I, I think where we are right now is we have civil unions that we are calling marriage because of one of the central 
reasons we have this podcast, because we are living in a post-Christian society that still has elements of Christianity divorced from the foundation of Christianity, which makes it some sort of, it, it makes it like a, a dead tree that hasn't fallen over yet. Yeah, at times, yeah. And, and so uh, what, what we have are civil unions that are called marriages without any interest in them being Christian marriage. Right. For, I mean, and, and, and there are heterosexual ones and there are homosexual ones. And in, in our time, I, already people are arguing that there can be a marriage with three people in it. Right. Uh, who knows what else we're going to see and hear out of this. As to the question of what should we do about that, I can tell you you've caught me on my heels. <laughs> yeah, sorry. sorry. Uh, so well, let me, let so me. Your, your position really is... Mm-hmm. We should do what again? We should say no. There, you either are going to get marriage, yep. or you're not going to get a civil union. Is I think that, I don't. I, I think if the state is going to have a, an interest in marriage at all, um, then they need to apply a standard across the board of of what it is. Um, so what I mean is that right now, and this is true, the the state sort of privileges marriage. Mm-hmm. There are benefits that come from being married, including certain tax breaks and and other things. Um, and so the state does have, in a sense, an interest in marriage, and they have made it so. And I think that's okay. I think that's fine. Yep. In fact, in ways, I think that's good. Um, I think that the state needs to be clear then as far as what marriage is and why they privilege it over others, um, which is not a very clear conversation that we're having right now. Uh, right, right. Um, but when you we've talked about these statistics even already again today. When you look at the statistics of like what is best for society, what's best for society, and what produces uh, a healthy society is having strong marriages where the husband and wife are committed to one another and stay together, yep. who are having kids in that marriage right. and are raising kids in the context of that of a family with a husband and wife and right. mother and father. Um, and well, that's it. And then they remain married, right? Right. Um, I mean, there, you this, know there's a law on the books in Texas right now. Uh, if it's not been voted in yet to where, I mean, that's basically the idea. If you get married, have kids and stay married, you're going to get enormous tax breaks because mm-hmm. it's good for society. And the people mm-hmm. who go like, what in the world is this all about? But look, we're, we're on the, on the horizon are unbelievable problems. The birth rate is in st- strict, I mean, mm-hmm. serious decline mm-hmm. for lots of reasons. And all, if, if you don't know what effect that's going to have on production of everything mm-hmm. you you have the inevitable decline of every industry if there are no people to work in 20 to 50 years right right i mean right. and so that that alone is an argument to some degree in favor of what you're saying yeah um i i i can go ahead and ask you to finish uh your position because i can tell you I don't have one yet yeah. because the other end of this is how do you make people join into something that is so closely attached to Christianity when they have no interest in being attached to Christianity? Well, the government's already doing that. I mean, the government's already giving marriage licenses and, and uh, you know, allowing to recognize people as married, right. even, though, even though the government is not um, a religious institution. And there is that sort of separation of church and state. And so if we were to come out and say, okay— the government no longer has any hand in marriage or civil unions or anything like that at all. There's no tax incentives or breaks or anything. 
for people who get married and stay married or enter right. into uh, civic civil what is it civic unions civil unions civil yeah. unions yeah um, and I don't think that's the best course of action but I would say that's fair that makes sense right but I don't think it is wise or good or makes good sense for the government to say okay we've got marriage in in our sense uh, which as you know C.S. Lewis is kind of arguing for can easily be broken you can be let out of it no problem um, the government would seemingly would have that as a category because there are some sort of benefits to it or incentive mm-hmm. towards it. Um, whereas then there's the biblical understanding of, of, you know, Christian marriage, which is different and separate. And we make that distinct. Yeah. Um, obviously I do think that there, there are some people who get married who aren't Christians. Um, but I still think they benefit. I think society culture benefits. There's fruit from that. Uh, from operating in marriage in a biblical way. So that even when two unbelievers choose to get married, stay married, and rear their children in that context, they are going to benefit and their children are going to benefit even, uh, this is all temporally, this is all here yeah, on earth, yeah. um, even if they are not believers. Um, and I think the government is would be wise to sit, to see that and favor that and benefit that and even incentivize that. I think it'd be good for society and human flourishing. Um, I think to say, oh yeah, we have this thing called marriage, but you know, unless you're in a Christian marriage, right? Unless you're a Christian, you're talking to the church, whatever, you can easily get out of that at any time. Um, I think that's de-incentivizing marriage and what is best for human flourishing. But I think the same thing about homosexual marriage too. I think gay marriage is obviously, I think it's a, an incoherent statement to begin with because marriage biblically as always defined throughout all of history was between a man and a woman. But, um, yeah. I mean, there's probably more to it, but that kind of, I think, is the gist of my argument. I disagree with C.S. Lewis. I think it would be better to say, no, we're going to commit to what marriage is and what is best for human flourishing as a government, uh, as the state, or we're going to take no interest in it at all whatsoever, period. Yeah. I think either one of those makes more sense than saying we have two different marriages. <laughs> right, and I've even heard uh, some conservatives say given where we stand, I think the government should get out of recognizing marriage altogether and just yeah. say each individual can give their uh, tax status to one other individual and then walk away because the government is now so deep into this that it's just going to yeah. make it more and more complicated. And yeah. I again, I frankly, I go, I, I think that's a really hard judgment to make, so I don't have an opinion on it yeah, yet. It is. It's, um, it is, it, it, it's, now I'm going to make a comparison. It's you can't exactly compare it because it's such a unique situation. Um, but the comparison to what you said earlier in terms of uh, for food, we we have the FDA who makes sure that food is held to certain standards. And uh, but the, the the analogy kind of almost immediately breaks down because there's nobody out there going, you know, I want to do something fundamentally different with food. You know, I want to put it in my ears. So why don't you, you know, like there's a, like, there's nothing, there's, there's no analogy, but, but we need some because it's very complicated. Now it's interesting, uh, too, to me, uh, C.S. Lewis is a very kind of will driven individual. And so it like this high, and I mean, He's Irish into England, so you can see this very sort of distant kind of respectful attitude. Like, look, if people want to do something, then let them let them do it. Let them destroy themselves. And yours is sort of more warm-hearted in a way. It's like I don't want to. I don't want. I want to keep people as close as I can to what God wants to give them because if they don't know what that is, they're just going to destroy themselves more and more and more. 
but we're in such a unique position now uh, being so poorly understood that I just, I look at it and I go, I don't know the answer to this. So. Yeah. Yeah, there it is. Well, that's kind of the, the bonus material at the end of this podcast, I guess. That's my my disagreement with uh, with C.S. Lewis in this chapter, but it's minor. You know, that's why if we hadn't have gotten to it, I wouldn't have been too upset. But, okay. Um, I was kind of like, yeah, I'd like to know his rationality behind that because mm-hmm. he kind of just throws it out there in a short paragraph and then boom, has it. I basically read for you the paragraph on that. So it's not very much that he has on it, but I found it to be interesting. I'd like to know his rationale behind it, but I probably never will. <laughs> yeah. Well, this has been great. Um, then these chapters, uh, a lot of the chapters have been very practical and very useful, but I don't know if there have been any two other chapters we've done that were more practical and useful, especially to our times than these right. two. Right. I agree. Words to live by for sure. Um, challenging words, mm-hmm. words that you run into in, in the scriptures. Uh, you know, the disciples said to Jesus, all right, say, say, say somebody sins against me seven times. Come on now. Am I good if I forgive him seven times? Is that enough? I mean, that's like the number of completion, right? <laughs> and Jesus says, no, seven times, seven times. Seven times, 70 times, depending on how you, I mean, yeah. how you translate it. Uh, I can't even do that, man. Yeah, yeah, I can't even do that, man. The point being, no, that's, you're, you're misunderstanding what it means to be uh, right in your forgiveness and in your forgiving attitude. So uh, difficult things, difficult words from Christ, difficult yeah. words from, from C.S. Lewis as he is, is reading Christ, but I think helpful words to us that we actually seek to apply them in a, in a right and biblical way as, as empowered by the Holy Spirit as yeah. believers. So, well, I hope this has been helpful to you all listening. Look forward to coming back and uh, getting through this book a little bit further. But in the meantime, this has been Empires of the Future. And we'll see you in the future.